O God, our Father, bless forward in faith. Inspire us and strengthen our fellowship. Help us to witness to the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that with love, patience, and evangelical zeal, we may win many hearts to Catholic truth and apostolic order for godly life within the fellowship of thy holy church. We ask this through Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back to this week's episode of the Forward in Faith North America podcast. I'm Father Daryl Fitzwater. Around the table with me today is Alex. And I'm Adam. And we're going to begin, well, I won't say begin, we're going to continue a discussion on formation, but we want to emphasize baptism today. So we're going to talk about pre-baptism, baptism properly, and then properly speaking, and then the post-baptism experience. We're going to talk about formation, how it ties into those three spots, and in the process, reflect on a little bit of the liturgical changes, uh, ceremonial emphases, distinctions, etc., in our prayer book, Spirituality. So maybe we can kind of synthesize some of the stuff we've talked about, you know, the past month or so. One of the things that I noticed with baptism is how much pushback we get back from it. I was surprised. That was one of the things I was really surprised about with, I I remember when I first started coming over into uh, Church of the Ascension, and you asked me if I believed in baptismal regeneration. And I said, I have no idea what that is. And it's been a, it's been a journey ever since with that. So I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that. Well, let's go ahead and just talk about that now, because um, one of the prayer books, maybe it's the 2019, has the option for not using the word regeneration in the, in the liturgy itself for baptism. And you can swap it out with a different phrase. Uh, which is a, a nod towards those of a, a theological perspective that would not be comfortable using the baptism, baptismal regeneration language. So let's talk about what baptismal regeneration is, what it is not, and then maybe what we'll say is there really is no such thing as a definition for baptismal regeneration, <laughs> depending upon where you went to school and who taught you what, right? So what is it? In short... We are made into a new creature, creation, creature. What do you think? I would say it would be a, a fundamental changing of the person and who they are. What does the word regeneration mean? Let's, let, let's, let's take away the, the phrase baptism. Let's get rid of that, that, that term and talk about regeneration. What is regeneration, properly speaking? I'll tell you what the uh, dictionary says. Which dictionary? Uh, this is... Let's see, the New American? Is that what that says? No, it doesn't count a, unless it's Merriam-Webster. Yeah. Oh, it's the New Oxford, excuse oh, me. Oh, Oxford. Yes. Well, well you know, uh, is it as trustworthy as it used to be? But go ahead. Go ahead. What's it say? The process of regenerating or re, being regenerated. How do you do? How does that? That's You can't use the sentence in there. See? You can't. Exactly. Hold on. Already trying to nail down a term right at the beginning. I know. So this, it has of a person for spiritual reasons. That's what it says. It says of a person reformed or reborn, especially in a spiritual or moral sense. 
Okay, so it's even making a distinction between like a biological regeneration right. and a spiritual. Now that would that definition in and of itself says we have to start asking what is it to be spiritual, right? And I'm not trying to create unnecessary distinction or to draw out the discussion in the in the wrong way here by bringing this up, but just to point out when you start to talk about these points, what do you what what kind of definition are you going to get? Um, because there are some that will say. Regeneration doesn't come because of baptism. Regeneration comes as an act of God in some sovereign way that has to take place so that you can receive faith. And then because you have received faith by being regenerate, then you can move forward to baptism. And so part of the, the, con- the confusion, if you will, is concepts like regeneration and baptismal regeneration directly impact your understanding of what's called the ordo salutis. What is the order of salvation? What is first? What is, what is the process by which the individual is converted and fully reconciled to God? And this is where some of that language, depending upon your theological camp, gets so, so tricky to navigate because you'll get people coming from the camps that go with that line I just gave there. And others who would say, no, the regeneration happens after you were baptized, because if you were baptized as a kid, then you didn't have any faith. And baptism is only an outward sign of your invisible faith. Now, that's not the prayer book, by the way. But there are those who will champion that kind of idea. And regeneration happens after conversion, which is almost almost in a real way, the exact opposite of it precedes conversion because you can't be converted unless you're regenerated first. Baptismal regeneration, and I'm going to abbreviate the discussion, and so all of, all of our listeners out there who are very theologically astute who would like us to do more of that in this, this episode, sorry, <laughs> I'm apologizing now. Uh, but baptism regeneration is essentially this, that you are regenerated in the water, not by the water, but in the water by the spirit because the this is the sacramental distinction where the sacrament is both the visible and the invisible coexisting or or co uh what is it well consubstantially present in a certain sense and i realize that's not the exact definition of the term there but just follow along with me for a second because we don't have in the um in the words of institution for baptism, we don't have prayers over the water like we have prayers over bread and wine at the consecration for the Eucharist, right? So when you think about these two sacraments as they relate to each other, the, the bread after the consecration is the body of Christ. That's what we say in the liturgy. And because that's what Jesus said, this is my body. He didn't say this is like, this represents, this is a kind, or this is a type. This is. In baptismal regeneration, even with the practice of praying over the water to sanctify the water, consecrate the water. And remember in the early church, most of the time that was a stream. There was water that was moving. And so they, they understood that the river you're standing in, when you bless it, that's moved on. Because people, they'll, they'll say that. They've said, it, said that to me. Can you... If you consecrate a river for baptism, is the whole river suddenly consecrated? I, you're kind How of far upstream. Like right, you have to do right. the mathematical formula so that when you're baptizing, 
the water that you bless is what you're actually right and you jump on your dirt bike and you fly down and you try to catch that, that <laughs> yeah see this is the like no 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 we're missing the whole point here um but the water even though the water is prayed over the water is consecrated and we can take that practice all the way back into the early church uh tertullian cyprian ambrose cyril of jerusalem they're all giving us an uh not just a statement that it's done, but in some cases, good theology on why it's well, happening. We see in the Didache. Right. Right. So we, we, That's we, very early. Very early. So we've got a whole uh, list of things here about the water itself. But the principal sacramental act is not the consecration of the water. Because it doesn't have the same, uh, what's the word I want to use? Attribute, quality ontological change that you it doesn't have the same kind of consecration where so that the bread and the wine become the body and the blood holy water participates in there's a difference so yeah it's consecrated yes it's blessed yes there's prayers of exorcism prayed over it so that the water participates in some sacramental way with jesus's own baptism where he's not being cleansed by the water he's cleansing the water right that's what ignatius tells us Baptismal regeneration is saying whether the water has been blessed, and it should be, that's, that's a right and good ceremonial work there and tradition, sacred tradition. The work of the Spirit in the water is regenerating the person and causing them to live to God. And we get that from a plethora of New Testament texts Romans chapter 6, Titus chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2. And we can go into the details there and start pulling out more of that for people. But the idea is that you're not part of the body of Christ in that real, true, spiritual way, sacramental way, until you're baptized. And that's, that is regeneration. You're, you're, you have now come alive to God. And, that's, and, and maybe that, well, I won't say maybe, hopefully that explains the stickiness of the situation because if God has to regenerate you to reconcile you first, well, then your baptismal, baptismal regeneration takes on a different connotation. If it's, you know, as some of the, the other fellows we know emphasize, like you were saying, the, the pushback, if baptism is just an outward sign, well, there's no, you wouldn't, even you wouldn't even put the two together. You would just dismiss that entirely. But that takes us back to the topic we talked about last week. This is where the formation side and the language that we use is important. And without common language, we can't have common definitions and we can't have common liturgical practices. So build, on the, build the most common thing that we can, recognizing that within it, there is a variation of what's permissible. But as long as we stay within that, we'll do well. So we see with um, baptism, we still have an anamnesis type event that's happening here. And I think that's really one of the things that really connect the sacraments is a drawing back of, of remembering what Jesus did. Mm. So you're going to, you're, you're going to take the, the anamnesis, the epiclesis and prolepsis. You're going to take that, the, that threefold act, if you will, the threefoldness. That's not even a word I want to use. The threeness. Three-legged stool. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to take that appropriated to, to baptism. So the anamnesis would be what, what are you, what are you remembering? Jesus' own baptism, or his death and resurrection, according to Romans six. Yeah, because baptism is 
that's happening. That's the ontological shift that's taking place. Right. Right. You're recalling Genesis 1, yeah. creation from the water. Genesis 8, after the flood, create the second creation after the right. water. Exodus, right? And in all three of those cases, there's a wind that blows over the water. So the spirit's over the surface of the deep. He drives back the floodwaters and he splits the Red Sea. So there's the spirit and the water, John 3, right? So there's, there's your recalling, that anamnesis. What about the words of institution? When you're blessed in the water and then the, the right form of baptism in a Trinitarian formula. Yeah, the Trinitarian formula. That's it. Yeah, it's not the consecration of the right. water. It, right. It's the, I baptize you. Actually, uh, Father Stafke, the Archdeacon Stafke, told us a couple weeks ago that he's, he's heard that Rome is changing the language on those liturgies. And they're saying, we. Well, wasn't there a whole big thing where mm-hmm. a lot of people said their mm-hmm. baptisms were invalid because the, the priest was saying we? Yeah. Or something comparable to that. Yeah, something like yeah. that. So let's not change it. That's rule number one. No innovations. <laughs> rule number two. No novelties. So I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, man. I was, I was baptizing this fellow one time years ago, and his, one of his relatives was in the back of the church. And she yelled up to the front, he did it wrong. And she was a, she had a Southern accent and we were up in Northeast Ohio. He did it wrong. He didn't say in the name of Jesus. And I looked at the pastor cause I was, it was a joint service. So I looked over at the pastor of that congregation and he looked at me and just kind of shrugged his shoulders. And I thought, what do you want me to do, man? I don't <laughs> have the right. mic. I'm standing in the baptismal <laughs> tank. Uh, okay. He didn't help you out at all? No. No, I didn't. So, so I looked at the fellow I just baptized and I said, don't worry, it counts. You know? <laughs> and then uh, we had, I had a follow-up conversation with, with that lady after the service. And, and that, was, that was interesting, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah, so there, there are the words. They're from the gospel, from the Lord's lips himself. Right. Okay. Um, and anticipating, obviously, the consummation of the age. Right. right. But here's, 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 a, here's a question I want to bring up. What about pre-baptismal preparation? What about it? Because I hear people say all the time, still, whether they're Anglicans or not. Um, I've never heard it from Roman Catholic, although they may do it, but I would imagine they'll get in trouble. They'll just baptize somebody on site. Gotcha. And then you get, you get the book of Acts as a proof text. So should there be preparation before baptism, or can we just, you know, you want an extra one? Come here. I'll dunk you in the River Jordan. Oh, you got baptized years ago, but you're not served the Lord. Well, like, come here. We're out of the ocean. Let's dunk you. Oh, we're down at the creek. There's enough water here for me to get your head wet. We're here at the Jordan. Why not? Yes, there should be uh, preparation, of course. That's, that's one of the things. Uh, I don't want to say that, but that's one of the things I've been critical of, of other things, of other I'll say streams of Christianity because, you know, raise your hand if you want to come down and get baptism, you know, again, baptized. Yeah. Or for the first time that, that excludes the whole, or does it, I guess, exclude the purpose. What the preparation or not having the preparation. You see, because if you don't have the preparation, then you're in a real way not just stripping the person of the formation that they should be receiving, but you're also changing 
the theology in this regard, because baptism in those instances has become individualized and privatized. It is not a corporate act. It's not their integration into the body of Christ. It's their personal salvation. Right. Personal confession. It's a, it's a privatized right. and it's about their emotional state. And the number of people who evaluate the efficacy of baptism based upon their emotional condition is very high. And that's very, very, very egregious. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, I have a good experience. Don't misunderstand me. But using the emotional buzz, which is why they get baptized over and over. When I was baptizing that guy I was telling you about, where his, his, the water was brown. Ooh. Like you couldn't see through it. It was brown. And it was warm. I'm like, this is not safe. I said, you got snakes in the bottom of this thing? <laughs> Had that sulfur smell to it. I was like, I don't, I don't know if the Lord wants me to do this. Let's just go out to the river. Yeah, just let it be cold. Let it be a little bit more shocking. Ice bath. No, I'm, I'm obviously joking there, but you know, probably, I don't know, warm and murky isn't, if it's in like a tank, like if it's like a baptism. It was a tank. baptism tank, but the it's water coming out of the, that part of the town was so bad. It was in a, it was in a former school. I thought, it, I, I thought it was like it had been sitting there for a while. No. And that's why it was brown. Well, Might I mean, have been. No, it was like warm. Like he got <laughs> it out of the water heater and that, that stuff was, oh, don't, don't wear white in that. You know what I mean? You come up looking like rust. That's not <laughs> the imagery that you want for baptism. Formation's got to happen. It's got to happen. Because we'll, we'll, we see that. We see that there's so many people that that base their metrics off of how well they're doing in a ministry by how many people they've baptized. You know, there's people, you know, that, that I had a missionary in Tanzania tell me in Gafcon that I, I won't say he was talking about Tanzania specifically, but he was talking about that portion of right. the world where the people are paid a couple bucks by every visiting missionary and evangelist to get baptized again. Right. And then again, and then again, and again, and then the missionaries and the evangelists use it in their newsletters to talk about the number of converts they had. It's fabricated. That's a roundabout way. So you're sending out your newsletters to receive support and using that support to get people to get baptized. Well, you're using it for your own means. Right. But yes. then, yeah. It seems like it's a good return of investment that's on that a, that's, one. We're talking about ROI. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what's Paul say to the Corinthians? I'm thankful I didn't baptize any more of you than I did. Right. He said, I, mean, I think I might have baptized one of you guys or two of you guys, I think. So, I mean, there, and that, and Paul is in no way denigrating baptism there, right? right? But he's speaking to, this isn't about my ego. Mm -hmm. And I think that happened, that happens in privatized baptism. Right. You know, if you, you get baptized in front of the church within the church, emergency baptisms are for the people on the deathbed, you know? No, the formation part's really important. Well, and you brought up a, a point. You said that people use like the book of Acts as a proof text. And you, you compare that, you have to, I think, bring apples to apples in this situation because later on we see some of the baptismal prep not diminish, um, but become substantially less than some of the, the times of the early church in which it's like a multi-year process in which oh, yeah. it's yeah, like yeah. You, you get your battle buddy and they follow you around and they tell you the things you're doing wrong. Ah, you need to fix this. That's yeah, the, not right. Parents, sponsors, right? Because they they legitimately don't know, and I'm part of this the culture that they're coming from. I would argue that the culture we're beginning to 
come from here in America, especially depending on your certain geographical uh, situation, is we need to go back to putting more emphasis on that preparation for baptism. We straight up do because Father, there's no not there's no working knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. There, right. There's no shame. Like there's a lot of these ideas that are just not built into our culture as they once were. And that's one of the biggest things I'll say. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. And I'm, I'm going to get to my point. I had a conversation with a friend the other day at work and uh, he was, he, he converted to Judaism so he can marry his wife. Okay. He's not practicing. He's, you know, he just, he just did it, you know, for a piece of paper, whatever. Well, we were talking about culture and he was talking about how he believes that the Bible was written for a specific culture, which yes, it was during that culture. But I told him, I said, the church needs to transcend culture. We're the ones that are supposed to create culture. And that's what drives me nuts. Well, that's for a different culture. That was a different time. Okay. Well, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Like we we know that. But and it's our job to bring the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, we pray that every day. I'm about to say, I feel like that's in a prayer somewhere. Every single day we pray that. Well, I do. I, I don't know about you, Adam, but I do indeed. I'm just kidding. But that's the thing. So we have to. That's one of the things that I've really strived to do in, in ministry and in the ministries that I've been involved in is really bringing that culture to, to the forefront because we have to be formed because we are formed. Everyone is formed one way or the other. Yeah, something's forming you. Is it proper or not? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the call that we're, we're brought to. Part of the traditional practice of preparation involved the anointing with oil to enroll the people as catechumens. Right, catechumen, catecho, to echo back, call back. So you were prepared for baptism. Sorry, your preparation for baptism involved initially an official enrollment to be to be prepared. Uh, Rome calls it the RCIA. It's the same principle at work, coming from Augustine, and the details we have about the early church's practice. Uh, Augustine, Cyril of Jerusalem, his mystical mystic. Mm, Oh my gosh, I know how to say it. Mr. Gog- <sighs> His lectures on the mystagogy. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's going on, right? So part of that was the anointing with, with oil, the chrism, with prayers for exorcism. And this was retained in the 1549 prayer book, the first edition, where, you know, the priest at, the, at that anointing, well, actually, this is not the, the enrollment for baptism. This is the baptismal liturgy includes this specific prayer, but it was also something that was being prayed over each person in their, their catechesis process and where they were being set free, prayed that they would be set free from any demonic influence. Um, and when I say that it's, it is a, a strongly worded prayer. Um, you know, I command you, you unclean spirit. I mean, this is, this is a very strong, stout statement that in, in a lot of ways doesn't get, like people would be shocked to hear it today. I shared it with a, with a friend, oh, what was it, a year ago, a couple years ago. And he said, wait, doesn't, that prayer sounds like I'm possessed. Are you? No, but uh, <laughs> uh, not anymore afterwards. Yeah, and so when you when you factor in part of the formation process is not simply 
the academic preparation. You know, here's the doctrine. It's about, here's the moral command. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's, here's how are we shaping and preparing for this comprehensively. And when you do a multi-week, I mean, in the early church, it was three years, basically, from the time you went from being an inquirer until the time you made it to the labor, you know, to be washed. Um, and that's, how can I say it? It's not, it doesn't happen typically as long today. Not, not intentionally, but I think if you, if you start with somebody on the street and the first time they hear the gospel and from the time they hear the, the gospel in a clear way and they, they move forward in faith to repentance, you're probably looking at a two or three year window. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, so you end up coming into that, that dynamic is still present. So if you, for let's say the period of Lent, have been meeting with your, your sponsors and you, you know, your godparents who are teaching you how to live and what's right and good, and you've been meeting with the deacon or the priest you know, who's doing the principal formation and education, and they're praying over you with the oil of chrism to be delivered from any unclean powers, you're moving through an entire formation element that's very, very significant on the front end. You know, uh, again, to refer to Archdeacon Stafke's stuff on deliverance ministry, most of that that takes place in the American churches is because we didn't deal with this at the beginning. We were baptizing people without, you know, leading them through a full process. Um, here, are the, here are the words from that 1549 exorcism. I command thee, unclean spirit, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, that thou come out and depart from these infants. That's the other thing. This is over the infants. Whom our Lord Jesus Christ hath vouchsafed to call to his holy baptism, to be made members of his body and of his holy congregation. Now it gets even more imprecatory. So directly to the, to the, to the diabolic power. Therefore thou cursed spirit, remember thy sentence. Remember thy judgment. Remember the day to be at hand, wherein thou shalt burn in fire everlasting prepared for thee and thy angels. And presume not hereafter to exercise any tyranny toward these infants whom Christ hath bought with his precious blood. And by this holy baptism calleth to be of his flock. Uh, Bucer, if you want to know, Bucer felt that that was too closely aligned to saying that the the infant was possessed like the other cases of demonization of the Gospels, and so it was removed from the 1552. What a shame. I like that verbiage. It's very clear, right? Very clear. And it's, it's, a, it's an Ephesians 2 thing. You know, you're not going to be under the prince of the power of the air anymore. You're not going to grow up in the passions of the flesh, walking after the pattern of this world. No, you're going to grow up free. That prayer commands the unclean spirit to never come back. So even when you start getting into the more deliverance circles, um, and I don't care whether they're Roman, Anglican, the, you, you go find somebody that's engaged in this kind of exorcistic ministry. They start breaking generational curses and praying against this kind of stuff. If in our baptism prep, we're leading people out of the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, you know, of God's beloved son, by the time we get to the ceremony, to the liturgy itself, and this is prayed over the infants. I mean, I do appreciate that the... Uh, the College of Bishops for the ACNA did put into the 2019 a prayer for deliverance. It's much simpler. I mean, 
hear the difference here. Now, this is not the traditional traditional language edition, but Almighty God deliver you from the powers of darkness and evil and lead you into the light and obedience of the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's not quite as weighty. Yeah, it's not a sledgehammer to the forehead <laughs> uh, for modern ears, but it's still nonetheless present. And is this in and of itself is uh, too much for some people, even in a contemporary setting. You, you, you mentioned, you said it was the oil of, which oil are they using? So the oil of the catechumenate and the oil of exorcism are the same. Okay. They're the same. Uh, in, in the three holy oils, you've got the chrism for exorcism slash catechumens, the, the chrism for the sick, and then the chrism for um, the sacred chrism, blessings, mm-hmm. ordination, stuff like that. So you got the three. Um, it speaks to the, the, the union between chrism or, uh, to catechumenate and exorcism being the same. Mm-hmm. Like that being the same oil speaks to those two dynamics being at work in the process for baptism. Because whenever you're going to engage in the solemn rite of exorcism, why are you using that oil? Because you're recalling the baptismal process and grace of being delivered from the Egyptians, you know, at the, at the outset. Well, and I, that concept is offensive. But it's, you know, it is in today's culture, that is an offensive thing to say, well, Ex- exclusivity is it, offensive. Yes. yes it, it, and in the gospels, that was Buser's thing. Because that, you know, the 1549 over infants in the gospels, how many cases of demonization are kids? Some, I can't give you an answer, but many, yeah, many. You don't just wake up one day and suddenly you're legion. Right. That's not how that works. But uh, that's, that's what, one of the, the things that prohibits us today from doing that is it's offensive. And if someone comes to you, you're. It's like this, this time when you're afraid to say anything too offensive. I think it's because of the like, stuff like the Salem Witch Trials, man. I think, yeah. I think when people hear about, um, and not, not that we want to take a, the baptism discussion and focus mostly on exorcism here. That's not, the, that's not the objective at all. But this is part of the formation process. When they hear diabolic influence, it's suddenly Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? It's his stories and short stories and stuff. It's, it's the Salem Witch Trials. and. And if the person's demonized, then we have to like drill holes into their skull so the demons can leave. And we got to lock them in, in asylums and we got to, you know, they need to be run out of, out of culture. That's not, that has not been the practice of the church. And I'll refer to Martin of Tours again, St. Martin. And I mentioned him in that other, other interview we did. The exorcists in the early church was, a, was a, uh, a minor order. They weren't ordained, but they were set apart. And they engaged in the, in the catechesis, the care, uh, care, cure of souls, you know, the praying over not just people that were demonized, but people that were handicapped. The church has been, the church created hospitals. And so you can't look at some of these particular epochs and say, no, that's, that's, that's witchcraft with eggs because it's some teenage girls who got a little carried away in, in, in uh, Massachusetts. That's not how you engage this. And so I think the problem is the stigma. And all parents would be offended until something starts happening to one of their kids or to themselves. And that's why I think even when you, when you, this topic in particular as a subset within baptismal preparation, whenever you bring this up from the front, you know, the podium, you're preaching. And you, you, if I just casually bring this up, I can guarantee you in 10 days, 
within 10 days of that, there are people who are contacting me about a demon that they have and they don't have one. Right. They don't have one. So not in a specific sense. But right. the, so here, here's the, the dynamic of how this has to become common because one of the things that commonality does is while it can deaden our conscience to particular things we need to be on guard against, the positive side is it by regulating, making things more regular, more accessible, it reduces stigma at the same time. And so part of the baptismal formation is not just the academic, the content of the creeds, the Ten Commandments, etc. It's the moral, it's the ethical, it's the, trans- it's the transformative, and part of that is the spiritual liberation from one power unto the other. And the other power, while we become slaves of righteousness, that makes us sons of God. And there's genuine and real liberty in that. And when, when we tie this back to regeneration for a second, when baptismal regeneration is about ontology, it's about our being sacramentally integrated into Christ's body. That's when we can see transformation in a real way. And just a, a quick note on that. I know that we, that I have had many friends that say, oh yeah, I've been baptized three or four times. You know, I've been baptized 114 times, you know, cool. all these different things. And one, I remind them, well, no, you're, you're only you baptized. Were baptized once. <laughs> you took a bath every other time. But the, my point is that there is a way for us, to, first of all, we remember our baptism and then we can renew our baptismal vows. We do that once a year at the church. And I, I've seen you do that in counseling, Father Darrow, uh, you know, is, as you're doing, uh, when someone is coming from outside the church, like, well, you know, I, I, I got baptized and I'm not serving the Lord. I think I should get baptized again. Mm-hmm. Like, well, no, let's, let's renew your baptismal vows. Yeah, let's go through the right reconciliation. And right. then for good measure, I, you know, but we'll do that. And then whenever we have a baptismal service, yeah. everybody's going to renew their baptism. Covenant. That was one of the things that spoke to me and started that. No, this is something, there's a different concept here because I came from a background where it was just a profession of faith. Like invite your friends, invite your family because you're about to make a profession of faith was during the conversations of we, we're not going to rebaptize them. Well, why not? Like right. it, what's, what's it really matter? Like you were, they just go in and make another uh, profession of faith and understand like the practice and even us uh, safeguarding in how we approach baptism. Like I remember the investig- the first time I saw someone who they either weren't sure about, um, I think it was their, whether they were baptized correctly or whether they were baptized at all. Like the research that you put into that, Father Darrell, in those conversations. And that really spoke to me because the practice and how we do things is important because it speaks to what we're actually doing once we step into the liturgy. So. Before you ever told me or before I ever experienced the liturgy of baptism, I saw that there was already a clear difference because of the practice that happened beforehand. When baptism is rightly understood, as scripture teaches us, that it is death to the old self and resurrection and union with Jesus. You can't do it more than once because he can't die and rise again. Right. So... The intersection of those, those principles uh, are important. That takes me into the next question I have for you guys. Ready, Alex? No. Let's hear it. <laughs> Is baptism necessary? <laughs> I 
I'd say obviously yes. Yes. What about the thief on the cross? So there's a whole um, branch of mathematics called statistics, <laughs> and there's these things called outliers. And these are things that are, Adam, you could, you could explain this better because yeah. you're a mathematician, but there's yeah. outliers, and these are things that are extraordinary cases. Mm-hmm. You actually, usually when you're dealing with outliers and you, like creating statistics, you many times will just cross them up. However, when we're dealing with, you, when it's a number, you can do that. When we're dealing with scripture and a text, you, you can't, you have to be a little bit more careful than saying, oh, well, this, right. the deviation of this number is at a certain point. You and I, I'm going to steal an answer that I heard recently. Um, if I don't know if anybody listens to Appalachian Anglican, uh, Father Daryl mentioned this idea that you don't. Did I actually say that on the podcast? Did I say it on the podcast or was it just conversation? Oh, it might have been a conversation before. Either way, okay. All right. While, we're, All right. while we were in the recording process for that podcast, he made the argument that you do not use the particular to explain general concepts rather you have a general concept that then goes in and will shine light on the specifics and then he said um the in jest uh, maybe the thief on the cross was baptized and then that kind of just confused me so i i stopped talking yeah we don't know that he wasn't if you're going to make an argument for silence that he that he wasn't then i can equally turn the argument of silence and say he was because we know that the apostles were baptizing from very early in the days of the lord's Mm -hmm. ministry and the scripture is pretty clear that a lot of people went out and got baptized by John. Yeah. Now they're not the same, but but John's baptism and, and the apostles they're not the same. But um, we don't know that he wasn't baptized. He calls <laughs> Jesus Lord, and, and remember mm-hmm. me when you come into your kingdom. So he had some working knowledge, right? right? And, and how do we know he wasn't baptized? My argument from that was that we should baptize people and then immediately immediately crucify them no that, that was my argument no that, that's terrible terrible appropriation i think that's what the theology. spaniards did well i'm just saying well i'm just saying we're like we're looking at bad logic here so i'm like oh well, well we're just making things oh, let's, oh yeah, i see if yeah, it's that gonna was, be bad let's be real yeah, bad exactly no, let's just, that's let's okay. just let's, <laughs> we, we back that up a little bit um but to go back to the case of the thief on the cross yes you can't use that right and that's what happens well what about him well, is anybody ever going to die next to Jesus again? No. <laughs> no. So, I mean, that is such an isolated example that you can't appeal to that, that text for that account. So what did the early church talk about? They talked about baptism by desire. And this was the case for confessors and martyrs, people who hadn't received baptism yet, but the baptism by desire was counted for them because they died as martyrs and their blood was their baptism in the same way that the Lord had water and blood come from his side. So there, there was that, here is the sanctity of the life that the Spirit is doing in it, uh, he, the grace that the Holy Spirit's giving without the water of baptism in an uncommon way. And so we don't build our theological practices and shape our liturgies around the uncommon. We do it around the common, recognizing that our God is in heaven and he does as he pleases. So if he sovereignly decides to act in a certain way, one, he's not going to violate what he's revealed because then we, we can't have any assurance that what he has said and commanded is still the case. So he won't go contrary to it. But he wants us to judge the particular and the uncommon by the common revelation. So that's part of the answer to that. The next, next way to think about this, is it necessary? 
for what? Question mark. So if someone says is baptism necessary, then the response in from our our part is necessary for what? So then you the number of people who when they started coming to the church and who weren't baptized uh, or who were baptized, but then we would be celebrating, you know, the Eucharist, and I would say, "Are you baptized?" Like I would check them if I didn't know them. I still do that. We give the announcement. This is this is the Lord's table. But if you're not baptized, come forward for a blessing. You can't receive here. That throws people. Like, wait, who are you to say that I can't come up and do that? Well, one, you don't take Jesus. So nobody's coming up and taking him from the priests like that. You receive him. But if you're not baptized, you're not part of the body yet. And that's the common teaching of scripture. Because you, people will go to, what's the guy? The, the thief on the cross. But then they go to Cornelius. Well, mm-hmm. they received the spirit before they got water. You, you realize the gap of time in that passage when the spirit falls upon Cornelius's house and they move to being baptized, is it a half an hour? And again, that's the uncommon because Peter has to perceive that baptism should, as a sacrament, should be given to the Gentiles. And that the Gentiles can come into covenant without becoming Jews first. That's why that happened. And it's not written so that we should expect that to be the common experience. Even David Brainerd in his diary, when he writes about this with the Native Americans, and when the, the, it was a very comparable experience, he's sharing the gospel with them in the tent. I believe he said he's in the tent uh, or just outside the tent. And he said this, this wind, this invisible wind came and buckled them all over and they all fell down and started speaking in tongues. In, Jonathan Edwards wrote, well, he redacted it. He edited Brainerd's, Brainerd's diary and describes this. So they perceived that then the same way Peter did. But has that been the common experience of God's people? No. So you can't take that and use it as the, basis for evaluating what's commonly given to the church. What's well, how we get reductionism. Yeah, that, that eventually that will turn into the standard. Right. Now, we see that with a lot of things. It's reduced all the way down to this to to an outlier and that becomes a standard and we see that now. That's how we get the baptism without formation. Right. We get the baptism without spiritual considerations. We get the bap- we'll baptize infants and the parents aren't in the church. Right. We, we we fall into the trap of turning baptism into magic. I had a buddy a couple of years ago ask me if he doesn't attend church. He said, they just had a baby. He said, will you, will you baptize my baby? I said, I, do you go to church anywhere? And I know he doesn't. He said, well, no, I don't need to go to church for my baby to get baptized. I'm like, buddy, you have no idea. You know? <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's infant baptism. We haven't even really talked about that a whole lot. Right. But infant baptism the parents or the godparents are coming as sponsors and they're making a pledge to raise the child in the faith. It's not magic. There is a con- conveyance of, and the giving of grace. There is a regenerating power. There's all of the, the spiritual effects are, are given, but you've got to disciple. You've got to raise the child in the faith. Uh, that's why part of even the liturgy that we have is when it's an infant baptism that the parents will raise the child in the faith and then bring them to the bishop to be confirmed. Um, that's the other side of this, and, and maybe we'll we'll end up doing a separate discussion on confirmation. We probably should, but confirmation is the completion of baptismal grace. It's a, it's a dual rite of initiation. Uh, we've done a very bad job of separating those two things. Um, and again, on formation, how do you prepare for confirmation, especially if somebody was baptized as a kid and they're completely gone, or you know, ideally, right? If it's a bap- the the infant's baptized, 
you know, as he or she's growing into childhood, they can be confirmed. Traditionally, they're, you know, roughly seven years old. And then I had a, I had a professor one time who said that that shouldn't happen. Baptism or confirmations should not happen until the kids have come out of college because of the number of kids who fall away in college. I thought, well, that's, it's not a reward. It's a giving right. of grace to strengthen and complete what was already so you, initiated. Yeah, so you can do that. So right. you can. Right. And, if, and if you're discipling comprehensively beyond the flannel boards and the YouTube videos, there will be a greater, greater ability to resist temptations and things. I think that's one of my favorite rebuttals that you have to people about infant baptism. I wouldn't say rebuttal, but an answer. People are like, well, I, I got baptized as a baby and it didn't do anything. I didn't become saved until I was an adult. And you always say, well, that just shows that your baptism worked. It worked. <laughs> I love that. Go, uh, kind of going back to like that, that idea that, oh, we should wait till after like college. It's, it's almost reducing confirmation as if one would, re- would reduce baptism just to profession of faith. Like it's just a profession of allegiance. Yeah. yeah. You, you, that idea, it, it seems reductionistic. Yeah, I think we'll have to plan a topic on confirmation properly before we wrap this episode of Seasons up. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Um, well, let's, let's, take, let's take our discussion for baptism now at this point uh, and, and turn it around as we start to kind of wind it out. Aside from confirmation, because we'll talk about that separately, what should, what should we teach? How should we help people when we're discipling them fellowshipping with them, et cetera, who have just walked away after the baptismal service. You know, they've been given a white robe uh, or a white towel and a candle. And I mean, they, they've received the sacrament. They've been, you know, um, given the anointing of oil with the, the you know, the, the, the injunction to fight under Christ's banner. You know, all of that's happened for them. The service is over. They're on the way out. What preparation what what remarks other than hey great job your hair's still wet like what do you say to people like that that is helpful see you next sunday that's part of it what else i was gonna say (laughs) is that enough (laughs) well it it's i'm obviously reducing it you are now you you are the church this is your inauguration into the church now be part of the church that that challenge that should have already been obviously sp- spoken of before, but now it's now it is very much so. We are going to enforce this. I'm going to push this. You need to be in church. Is that it? I mean, there's a million things we can yeah, say. <laughs> I don't I don't know what specific answer you want, but that's that's ex- exactly it. You are part of Christ's body now. You are part of our body. You know, we took. We took an oath to make sure that we will help you, you know, especially if it's a child. We took an oath saying that we're going to help you raise your children in the church. If you're an adult, we're going to help you. We're going to support you. You are part of our body locally. Yes. And there's a responsibility that every member has for, for one another. And building those strong connections and fellowship, lines of fellowship amongst the the members membership and increases the vitality spiritually for the people who've been newly baptized. And then if it's an infant that's been baptized, think about the kind of development you want to continue to foster with the parents and the godparents. 
I did, somebody did ask me uh, a couple years ago. Or did they ask me or just came back and told me later on? Um, because I didn't know the godparents. They said something to the effect of, we should have picked people who are actually Christians to be godparents. It was something like that. And I said, oh, yes, you should have. Uh, I didn't know them. They were visiting from out, out of town. So I just assumed that they had that worked out. Mm-hmm. And it was, in my mind, one of those things that I never even thought about saying, like, because if you look at the liturgy, it's pretty clear. And if you're not in the church, how are you going to raise or participate in raising somebody in the faith? So that's, that's, a, that's one of those faux pas, like, oh, well, that, that one I thought was understood. And there's another example of why talking about this formation is important, because we assume people know. We assume they fill in the blanks with the correct confirmation. You are better off, and don't, don't like fall into a despair over this, but you are better off to assume that they don't know so that you can be a bit more alert to what probably needs to be said. So when the baptismal service is over, the liturgy's finished, they're going out now in the name of Christ, rejoicing in the power of the Spirit. Yes, hey, let's keep praying and seeking the Lord and look forward to the good things. Let's rejoice in what's happened. I mean, it, it stays open and encouragement. Yes, we'll see you on Sunday, but praise God. There's more between this Sunday and next Sunday for, the, for you to be living into formation, living into the life of the body. What if, and I throw this out as a, as a question, and if, because I know it doesn't get brought up, I mean, I've, I've had some priests say, why do you pray the daily office? Yes, I've, I've had, actually had that question given to me. But um, when, what if adult who's converted, teenagers who's converted, and part of their formation prior to baptism as it should be, these principles are explained about the rhythms of our spiritual life. After baptism, now, and it's not that they've ever been excluded, but now you call them into a more intentional focus on, hey, we're doing morning prayer three days a week. Hey, we're doing evening prayer one evening a week. There's ways to start to fold them into the normal rhythms of life, spiritual life of the, of the parish, if they haven't already. And baptism is one of those catalytic events that invites them into that. Yeah, I mean they have, they have they have a a a spiritual responsibility now to be present at the Eucharist, to participate in the royal priesthood that they share in in offering, you know, that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to God with the Eucharist. They've already got that, you know, that 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 they have that now by being in in Christ Himself. So, in brief, when you think about the pre-baptismal practice, the liturgy itself, and then the the post-baptism event as, a, as, a, as an umbrella, as a comprehensive picture. All that theology, all that formation, all that practice. And if we can do that with good intentionality, we can see a good, healthy disciple as a result. And that's what lasts them through college. And that's what lasts them through the hard things in their life. And that's what lasts them. You know, that's... They're, they're, they're 55 and they've just gone to the villages, you know, because they right. can live in the village now, you know, the villi- villages, yeah. you know, the retired li- retirement living. Yeah, I'm Let me tell you, 55 used to be somebody who was older. And when I think about my proximity to 55, as, close, <laughs> as opposed to my proximity to some other ages I've been, I think that is, that's hardly retirement age, but it's, it's, a, it's a church plant at a retirement community. 
So the guy's 72 years old. He's got a, or the gal, the, the gal is 84. First time she's really given her life to the Lord. She's gone through the process and got baptized. You're building a church with the villages. You know, all kinds of ways to do this. Yeah. That's true. I, I do want to, um, one of the things that kind of stands out to me, at least in the liturgy, um, kind of talking about like, what do you do post-baptism? Or like, yeah. what is the, and this speaks to the amount of effort that is put into it. Um, the celebrant uh, says, or addresses the congregation, will you who witness these vows do all in your power to support these persons in their life in Christ? Right. That's, if that is taken seriously, just as if the candidates for baptism or those being baptized are taking their vow seriously, if those are being seriously taken at the same time, that vow of the congregation, it, it creates community. Yes. It changes the way, because when you, it's not like, at least not with us, this might be the case in some places. The first time they're reading this liturgy is not when they're there that Sunday. I should hope not. It is not. Not the first time they've read through that liturgy. Lord willing, we, uh, we've had people who are in baptism prep right now, and I sent them the, the liturgy. Uh, That's like the fir- one of the first things. Yeah. I, yes. I mean, I've already showed it to them. We've already talked about it, but I sent them the actual. But part of that is a mutual agreement right. in which both parties are entering into during this liturgy. And many times people are like, well, that's, that's not my business. It is your business. It is your business. And it is your business to do all in your power to strengthen them, support you them in their vows. are your brother's keeper. I feel like I'm going to have to start stepping out every time we do a baptism service. That way I don't have to take that out. <laughs> I wasn't there for that. I didn't say that. <laughs> I know the rest kid. of y'all did, but I was <laughs> back at the coffee tent getting some donuts. <laughs> mm. Well, I hope that this particular discussion has kind of maybe spurred some fresh thought or ideas for the listeners and for the, the mission leaders and the disciple makers who are listening. And if uh, anybody stumbles across this and you have not been baptized and you are part of a Christian body, a Christian church somewhere, and this has never been something you've been, you've been made aware of, um, talk to your pastors and then start seeking the Lord about where you can go to get the right formation that you need so you can be baptized and, and brought truly into the, into the church, into the body of Christ. And with that, Everybody, thank you for listening. Hope you have a great week. Once again, I'm Father Daryl Fitzwater, and I'm here with Alex. And I'm Adam. Have a great day. <laughs>